Talk to us now and go to the TNT Radio interactive live chat room at tntradio.live. Lighting the fuse for freedom. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. From climate change to energy and environmental matters, you're listening to Unleashed with Mark Morano on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome to Unleashed. I'm your host, Mark Morano. Well, I was going to be covered in something today, but I think we're going to postpone that till tomorrow. Uh, we have a breaking story in the world of uh, climate change and something that you have in your house, but we will wait a day. Uh, today, of course, is Martin Luther King Day here in the United States, and it's a federal holiday. And the other holidays in February, the other presidential holiday, not other, but the presidential holiday, our next federal holiday, used to be called Washington's birthday or Lincoln. Now I think it's just called President's Day in general, because I think George Washington was, a, I guess, a slave owner. So you're not allowed, our founding fathers, you're not allowed to refer to them or have any honor or anything because of the historical anomalies of that uh, historical history of all that. So anyway, so today is uh, Martin Luther King Day. Today is also... Uh, one day before the Michael Mann, uh, Mike Mark Stein defamation trial in Washington, D.C. And for those of you who followed that over the years, you'd have to go back to 2012. It's been 12, uh, 2011 or 12. Uh, Mark Stein wrote a brilliant piece in National Review, basically saying that because Michael Mann, a Penn State professor, compared him negatively in a sarcastic way to Jerry Sandusky, Mike, Mark, Michael Mann, uh, got upset, said he was being defamed. And of course, he said his scientific honor and integrity. So he sued Mark Stein. Well, that lawsuit has then been dragged out by uh, Michael Mann for over a decade. Mark Stein's always been willing. In fact, they just went, I was there uh, back in October. They had the uh, original uh, court hearing and they were going to have, well, not the original, but the most recent. And it got postponed. And Michael Mann tried to postpone the trial yet another year. So Michael Mann, the, the Penn State professor, who's now at University of Pennsylvania, his whole strategy seems to just be bleed his clients out. He never wants to face him in court. The beauty of this Mark Stein, Michael Mann trial is Mark Stein is acting as his own attorney. And Mark Stein is going to theoretically be able to cross-examine Michael Mann in person in a DC courthouse. Now, just so you understand, Michael Mann is the scientist or the professor from the United Nations who came up with the infamous hockey stick chart. We had like 600 institutions, temperature records, reconstructions, peer-reviewed studies showing both the Roman warming period and the medieval warming period were as warm or warmer than current 20th century, 21st century temperatures. Well, as I mentioned many times in this show, I worked for the United States Senate Environment Public Works Committee. We had a scientist named David Deming, a professor from University of Oklahoma, who testified to our committee that he was reached out to in the mid-90s that, quote, we have to get rid of the medieval warm period. And this is Michael Mann, where enter Michael Mann, he came in and he did a, a bunch of statistical rubbish, is what one scientist called it, and came out and erased the entire medieval warm period and made the a hockey stick chart of northern hemisphere temperatures for the last thousand years. So showing temperatures like this until the 20th century, somehow they shoot up like that. This was roundly criticized throughout academia, even Michael Mann's own colleagues. We later found out from the ClimateGate emails, weren't buying it. They were basically trashing his scientific methods. Other climate scientists who are actually believe in the, you know, believe in a man-made global warming problem also criticized Michael Mann. People like Richard Muller, 
uh, and Hans von Storch uh, and, and many other UN scientists. And uh, we had them come testify in the US Senate Environment and Public Works at the time. So that's what's going on. So Michael Mann is, is going to, and he's got a team of lawyers. At one point, I don't know if it's still current, he had the lawyers that were associated with big tobacco, defending big tobacco. But this trial, Mike, Mark Stein, as the conservative commentator, has relished the opportunity to cross-examine and have this trial go forward. Uh, and well, we'll see what happens. Uh, as of right now, here in Washington, D.C., it's a snowy day. A couple inches of snow are falling. And believe me, that's probably going to be enough to postpone tomorrow, January 16th, trial start date for this big uh, big lawsuit that's proceeding uh and we'll see how this uh how this develops okay the other thing going on well first of all i do have a guest today he's coming in on the second uh second uh segment and his name is denzel wessels and we are going to be talking about ai artificial intelligence and this is not a topic I've spent a lot of time on a lot of topic that I know much even about, uh, other than my dabbling. I mean, my research where I dabbled a little bit into AI with the Great Reset, and I'll ask about that. Klaus Schwab bragging about the brain implants, and you have Yavar Navar Harari, the w World Economic Forum advisor, talking about artificial intelligence and computers basically taking over and people becoming useless eaters, etc. So we will have Denzel Wessels joining us after the the upcoming break. Okay, I wanted to play you the the. Uh, AI, since we're doing an AI show today, a AI, artificial intelligence generated Bill Gates spoof quote of him at the UN climate summit in Dubai. I just think it's brilliantly done and it's what he probably says in private or what he would say if he was being completely intellectually uh, honest. So this is clip four, Bill Gates laying it bare on what it's really about for him, the climate agenda. I'm here in Dubai and of course I flew in on my private jet uh, very, very important meeting. Uh, the issue of you peasants eating bugs uh, will be discussed at length. Uh, that's never gotten the attention it deserves. Um, the issue of COVID-19 not killing off enough poor people and my vaccines not weeding out the rest of you bastards, which is a tragedy, of course. We'll talk about using killer robots next. Um, Chat absolutely solved that problem. I, I don't know why the clip cracks me up. I just, first of all, I love how well it's done. So kudos to AI technology for being able to do that. Uh, I, I thought I'd have a lot of fun with that. All right. And another clip I wanted to show you is these electric buses. Uh, I, I showed you the clip last time of me on the Fox News with Stuart Varney talking about how even the Washington Post couldn't spin these electric buses as being somehow practical, logical, engineering uh and and we're finding out now of course avis rental car is getting rid of uh, i think a third of their fleet of rental cars due to lack of consumer demand and high maintenance costs those are about the worst scenarios you can have for a automotive car when you're trying to market it well our car would be doing great we'd be getting more than seven percent of sales if uh well if if we had some demand for our vehicle and if uh you know they weren't huge costs to them oh really and and seven percent by the way is despite the only seven percent despite massive both federal state local international eu uh united nations 
corporate government collusion, mandates, subsidies, the banning, and the biggest, of course, is the banning of their competition. I've used this analogy before. To say electric cars are going to be the world's leader is literally like saying, you know, we're the world champion Super Bowl team and we're showing up for the Super Bowl, but you've banned the other team from entering the stadium. Why play the other team? You already know you're the winner and you have the moral cause. You're saving the planet. The other team just wants a win so they can get big flashy rings on their fingers. You're saving the world for children and grandchildren. And that is what really matters. And that's why you ban the competition. That's why oil, coal, gas are being heavily restricted. That's why they're being uh, heavily uh, regulated to the point. And of course, the gas powered car is literally just being banned outright. So I wanted to show you, this is the electric buses catching fire. Uh, I think you'll enjoy this is clip three. And there you have it. It's just how one catches fire and then it's just just like dominoes straight down the line. There's reports of insurance companies not wanting to insure them for cargo ships because a cargo ship fires electric vehicles, parking garages, inside people's homes. They have a much, apparently a much higher combustion rate than any gas powered car. And what's frightening once again about this is this is a product that's clearly not ready for prime time. And even if the cars were ready, just, just pause that for a moment. The infrastructure certainly isn't. So they're forcing this product on us on the idea that we're gonna have less severe storms, we're gonna save the planet, that our grandchildren are gonna be happy. And you have the banning of gas powered cars, but it doesn't stop there. You have the banning of gas stoves, you have the banning of leaf blowers, you have the banning of gas powered lawnmowers, on down the line. This is insane. We needs to be stopped. And into this fold comes people like Utah, uh, Congressman Congressman Curtis, who's taking on Mitt Romney's uh, Senate seat. He wants to run for the Republican nomination in Utah. Whoever wins the Republican nomination is going to be the next Utah senator because the Democrats don't really have a chance in Utah. But they usually put up some pretty crappy Republicans. Now, Mike Lee is good, but he's the only exception that, you know, and um, oh, who's the other senator uh, from Utah? His name's failing me, but he was pretty good. He was pretty good on my issues. Uh, on climate. He actually used to cite the, the reports I did when I worked for the Senate about the 700 dissenting scientists. So Utah can be a very mixed bag politically, but Mike Curtis, the Congressman Curtis, who's trying to take over, won't challenge any of these premises of the whole net zero, of this whole uh, fight upon which we're fighting. I want to just play you one last thing and we'll go to break, but clip two, this is EU. Um, President or climate commissioner was climate commissioner president now of EU, Ursula von der Leyen on net zero and the goals of net zero. Clip two. Indeed, if we look back, a little over 50 years ago, the Club of Rome and a group of MIT researchers published the Limits of Growth report. It mapped the interaction between population growth, the economy, and the environment. And it came 50 years ago to a drastic conclusion. Stop economic and population growth, or else our planet will not cope. And as you know, this report has sparked a long controversy, for instance, about the role of new technology in the countering the climate change. But instead of prolonging these debates, I want today to concentrate on one point, and that is a point that the report got right beyond any doubt. And that is the clear message that a growth model 
centered on fossil fuels is simply obsolete. Wow. I mean, this is who's leading Europe. This is why, the, you know, it's just incredible. I don't know that there's much hope in terms of overturning people through elections. I mean, I just, I don't know. Even these populist waves seem to come around a lot of bombast and then sort of fade out. But the Club of Rome from 1971, these were reports that were just famous for being 100% wrong. They go right along in with Paul Ehrlich um, and all the doomsaying, uh, all the environmental stuff, but they just keep making the predictions over and over and over again. Uh, so this is what we're battling here. Uh, I will be keeping you updated on this uh, Mark Stein, Michael Mann trial that's going to be going on in D.C. court. I don't know the exact start date because of cold weather here, which, by the way, is due to global warming, for those of you who do not know. One last point before we go to break. The governor of New York, Kathy Hochul, Kathy Hochul in, in consultation with the NFL, added an abundance of caution and concern for public health, canceled an NFL game due to lake effect snow in Buffalo, New York. Buffalo, New York, literally it's a typical winter day. And, and then to cover her side, she had a video of the actual field, what it would have looked like when the game was supposed to play on Sunday, like a normal. And people from Buffalo were like, this is the game. This is what we. This is what the NFL is all about. The most storied games have happened here. I call it NFL weather wimps. Unbelievable. They postponed the day. I, we, the only hope is that you know maybe they'll get a more unexpected, worse snowstorm today. I don't know. But this is where we are with the world today. This would never have happened even five years ago. It wouldn't have happened 10 years ago. COVID changed everything. They just, there's no limits to what bureaucrats and executives think they can do on a whim, just cancel stuff. And, and and the public health people behind it, the idea is if we have a game and there's one fatal car crash, oh my gosh, we could save one life. We can't do it. Why even allow human life to continue? I always joke, like if we're gonna, if we're gonna lock down or cancel a game because it's snow or lock down because of a virus, why not evacuate Florida every uh, beginning of every hurricane season and not allow anyone back out of an abundance of caution? Let's keep everyone in Florida safe. Uh, why would you risk one life? If it saves one life, to evacuate Florida, why not do it? At some point, <clears throat> the public has to push back. Europeans have to push back. I really don't have much hope for Europeans, but anyway, I guess it all goes country. Italy has shown some promise, but even Georgia Maloney, all these leaders, they seem to get in and then they just fizzle. It's happening right now. And I believe it's, I think it's Argentina or Venezuela, the libertarian, he's already reversed himself on climate. Uh, I just, I don't know. They, these people get in and then they, it's almost like they just say whatever they want and then they don't expect to win. And then when they win, they just do what the establishment wants. It's it's so sad, so sad. But anyway, all right, enough of that. Um, you are watching Unleashed with Mark Moreno. When we come back, we'll be joined by Denzel Wessels. We're going to be talking about artificial intelligence. Stay tuned. You should hear what Ross Cameron is talking about. I see there's a new trend taking place, sweeping uh, the internet of what they're calling sort of technology naked walks, where you go for a walk 
without your iPhone, without uh, a headset, and just alone with your thoughts. Apparently some people are finding it quite emotionally taxing, but subsequently liberating. Uh, certainly I find if I get into a motor vehicle with a teenager, it's a matter of seconds uh, before there is a request for uh, usually the latest uh, Taylor Swift song or some other form of electronic stimulus. We are generation apparently trained uh, for a very short concentration span and a desperate need for um, digital company. Ross Cameron on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. It's been said that when someone you love has Parkinson's, you have Parkinson's. The truth is, Parkinson's disease doesn't just affect the diagnosed. It affects everyone who supports and helps care for them. Worldwide, over 10 million people are living with Parkinson's, a neurological disease that affects movement. And with so many places to search for information, it can be difficult to know where to begin. The Parkinson's Foundation has answers. Answers for everyone in the fight. We can help you understand the disease, help you find expert care, give you tips for living a better life, share the latest research, help you find local support, and there's a free helpline you can call. Find your answers and join us in the fight against Parkinson's. To learn more, please go to parkinson.org or call 1-800-4PD-INFO. The Parkinson's Foundation. Better lives together. Ladies and gentlemen, today's news talk. News and information. TNT Radio. Welcome back to Unleashed on TNT Radio. Hi, this is Mark Morano uh, with, with your host. And we're joined here now by Denzel Wessels, the founder of Dimian, a leading innovator in data security and access solutions, and helps organizations harness the power of AI, artificial intelligence-driven data access policies. Uh, welcome to the program, uh, Denzel. Hi, Mark. Thanks for having me. All right. Tell us a little bit about what your company does as it relates to artificial intelligence, AI, and uh, and where you see this whole issue currently at the moment, whether we should be afraid or not afraid of AI. Look, Mark, I, you know, I think everyone should be a little bit cautious. Um, one of the things that we're focused in is if you think of, you know, what is AI? AI is a neural network of a bunch of information that allows people to query it to, to you know, on their queries. And you know, what's interesting is how it's actually created. You know, companies take the data that they have, they strip out every notion of access control and security, and it's really boiled down to, think of numbers, what you hear about coefficients, it's boiled down to a number and a word, and it creates a mathematical relationship between the different words that are out there. And so when people go to consume it, there's no security, there's no concept of who should have access to what kind of information. So our company focuses on reconstituting that security to protect the data for the different organizations. Well, okay, now, so you're, yeah, go ahead. You no, know, your question of, you know, uh, should we be concerned? Uh, I think absolutely. Look, we're all learning about AI right now. And I think the biggest thing that we have to worry about is what is the sensitive information that we're giving to these AI solutions that can be used against us? So I think we should be a little bit cautious dipping our toe into the water. Well, that's what I was going to say is it seems as though for AI to be intelligent, the amount of data mining and the amount of data it needs to collect on us. Uh, here's an example. I, I, you know, people anecdotally swear it's true. Can you confirm it right now? 
when I was talking about, I think it was a lawnmower a couple of weeks ago, and then all at, talking, not on my phone, not on my computer, in the room. And then later you go and you see lawnmower ad for your on your AOL inbox or something like that. Is that just anecdotal or is there actually any science to that? Uh, or maybe, or if you do a search for something, do you immediately get the ads? Is that part of AI? Is that the idea of tailoring everything to you to, to bring it to you? Or is that, a, is that not considered AI? Absolutely. I mean, AI at its core is something that is associating a whole bunch of words. And you think about it's important to understand language. So when you when you see something like that happen, there is an engine that is collecting speech and taking the words and associating it to its its set of words that it knows to understand what you're looking at and what your intent is. And companies are absolutely going to use that information to target you. And obviously, that's the that's the sales business side of it. Is hey, let's target Mark with the the lawnmower ad because he's talking about lawnmowers. But then there's also the potentially negative side where bad guys can you know use information to target you. And typically, you know, when there's malicious things that happen on the outside, it's usually going after the human and you know the human in that loop. So understanding that you know Mark is looking for lawnmowers. What about if I was using that to to fish you to, you know, have a company call you say, hey, you know, you've won a free lawnmower. Just give us this information. Right. We'll ship the lawnmower. So it can be very targeted. Absolutely. Well, like this information, uh, yeah, they click when you go to a website and it says accept all cookies, reject all cookies. Is that part of the AI information monster? Should you accept those cookies on a website or should you reject them? The average person, you know, surfing the web. Yeah, so cookies are related about you know to storing information on your machine, right? It, it's a it's a breadcrumb that companies can use to gather information about you. So if you look at you know uh, there's different laws, CPRA, GDPR, and everything that dictate about how you can store cookies. So companies have been forced to say, hey, do you want to accept these cookies or not? Um, and there's obviously there's functional things that make websites work, but then there's the targeted ad based side of it that gathers information. And that is shared between a lot of other companies so that they can gather that information and target you as an individual. Well, it also seems like I can't remember. I don't want to mention company names, but whether it's a banking company, whether it's a, some kind of consumer, there's always some kind of hack at some point where they say our data was breached. We are so sorry. We're working on the problem. We're containing it. You may or may your sensitive information may not have been. What is that all about? Is that part of sort of a, is that part of the competitive war for AI and the information warfare? Who's hacking this information? Do, do black market people hack it and then resell it to someone else for some profit and it's completely illegal? How do you explain? I, I just saw that like about a week ago. Uh, some of, one of my company, I can't remember if it was PayPal or some company, they're somewhere someone's always getting hacked, sensitive information, and they're always being forced to send out emails and disclosing it. Is that part of the AL, AI info warfare? You know, I think it's something that's existed just around securing data. Um, you know, one of the things that has existed in the technology and security space is, is the lack of data security. And when I say lack of data security, you know, everyone's heard about firewalls and, you know, protecting against advanced threats. But as a, as a, you know, as an industry, we've never built things that safeguard and hide data. 
So the risk we've always had is, you know, can someone get inside the door inside my company, whether through, you know, hacking in or through simple social engineering? Hey, you know, I'm Bill with accounting. Give me your, you know, I need this information to look at this. That's typically the fastest way in is through the human. And, uh, you know, the challenge was is what can people to get access to once they're inside, once they have access to the data? Now, AI, if we if we pull it back to talking about AI, AI is only as good as the data and the model, you know, the yeah. data that it's been used to train the model. So if people are able to get, you know, exfiltrate your data from the company, they can absolutely use it against you. And bad guys have figured this out. If you look at, you know, we know about the public GPTs or generative AIs that are out there. Bad guys have their own flavor of that. They take that same information and create one for, for bad reasons it, that just doesn't have all the controls around it and all the safety features that the other vendors are trying to put. Well, when uh, I'm thinking like when Amazon, when you search for something and then all the related stuff, is that considered AI or is that just, or, you know, or your TiVo, where if you record certain shows and it'll suggest other shows, is that a form of AI or is that just as old as data collection going, not really related to AI? I think it's as old as data collection. I think we've heard the terms machine learning over the years that has kind of morphed into AI. It's all about finding patterns in data. AI has okay. just made it a lot more efficient and has given us the ability to generate information as well. So not just consume information. So if you think of that, that example that you just gave was about, um, you know, machine learning. I collected all this data around Mark. What can I understand about that data so that I can target you? The other side is, okay, hey, I've generated this with Mark. What else would Mark be interested in? So it can yeah. take patterns of other data for other people out there say, hey, you know, Mark's, you know, was talking about lawnmowers. Hey, people that were interested in lawnmowers are also buying grass seed, for example, and right. maybe it will target you with grass seed. So it's kind of layers of technologies and techniques we've had in the past with new ways to generate additional information on top. Wow. Well, um, my daughters have what, they, what you mentioned, chat GPT on, on their Apple's phone, right? And they'll put in a couple terms and then the AI comes back with like, they'll say, write a letter expressing my disappointment about something. And the, the letters are all remarkably similar that come. It's the same breathy language. It's very artificial. It doesn't sound genuine. And it's all sort of long-winded and, and it's repeat phraseology. Now, maybe it's because of the input words they're putting in, but it's not very impressive uh, in terms of like persuasion. But I guess if you were say, write a research paper on King Henry incorporating the following um, documents, that's the ultimate form of AI for the young student today, right? That would be like, oh my gosh, I can have a research paper written instantly or a, few, a minute or less and not even have to do an ounce of research myself. Is that a big issue? And can schools, universities, teachers detect when something has, has the hand of AI in it, as particularly like a research paper? Yeah, I, I think that's a great example. In fact, you know, I have something similar with my daughter. She had to write a, a graduation speech for, you know, somebody else at her school. And so, you know, I remember showing her is, look, you can use ChatGPT and it's going to yeah. create the most, uh, the most vanilla speech that everybody's going to be happy with because it's taking the culmination of what is a good speech and it's creating the most common version of that. So it's going to hit the mark. Now, the, the challenge is, is what did you need to put in there that was different for you it's it's yeah. a generic bland response for everybody so you know people want to tailor it and because of that it's actually easy to catch those those kind of 
uh, those, I don't want to say forgeries, but that the GPT generated content. Now there are solutions out there that can take, you know, the content that was created, you can run it through and it can tell you if it came out of one of those generative AI models. But, you know, if you think about that, you know, trying to catch that, then somebody else just releases another solution that will go and rewrite the words so that it doesn't match, so that yeah. it hides the fact that was generated with AI. So it, it's kind of a challenge, you know, of, you know, how we're going to stay ahead of this. You know, I think the right approach is teaching people how to use generative AI to be more productive. We actually did a study within our company. We took uh, a software engineer's 30-day output, you know, 30-day work output around a project. And we found that we could achieve that same output in about eight hours using generative AI. So if you think about that productivity gain, I think it's unreasonable for people to say, well, don't use AI, you need creative mind. I think you want to be able to use these tools to add you know, your spin on top of it because productivity goes through the roof. And you know, I think especially for companies, not leveraging, leveraging generative AI today you're going to get left behind because guess what your peers and other companies are. And if you look at it, if they're getting, you know, a 60 to 80% productivity increase, if you don't step up and take advantage of it, you're probably going to get left behind. So there's, there's even the risk of not using AI in business these days. Interesting. Now, uh, if, if I was just thinking, if, if, if I were a student today and I were using it, I'd probably, it probably has good facts. I would probably use that as a good way to data collect facts in one location, but I guess that's just sort of like an encyclopedia. Um, but it's, you know, look, look, think of like the chess master. I can't remember if it's Gary Kasparov. He played like a master computer and lost. The computer beat like the world's greatest chess player at one point. This was decades ago. Is yep. that considered AI because uh, it's chess or is chess so technical and scientific or are they anticipating moves? And, does, and the question would be in a situation like that, does the computer have specific input about his opponent or is he just playing the game of chess, whoever happens to the opponent to be? That's, you know, I don't know if you know the answer to that, but it's one of the things I've always been curious about. You know, I I think, you know, if we go back in time, right, it, you know, machine learning, like we're talking about, morphed into AI, et cetera. It's a lot of techniques that we've been using for decades. They've just gotten a lot right. better. So, you know, on the chess side, it's about figuring out all the moves that are possible off of a set of moves and kind of looking thousands of moves ahead to anticipate what could happen. Obviously, the more AI knows about its components, it can predict based on, hey, all your previous matches, you tend to respond this way so it can find patterns that can use against it. So there is there there is something to that where you know, it depends on the data it's fed. Now, your mention of, you know, kind of the facts piece and comparing it to an encyclopedia, that one kind of makes the hairs on the back of my neck stand up a little bit because <laughs> AI can hallucinate too, right? Um, so you hear about, you know, model drift and, and those types of things. Those are AI kind of not getting the facts right and jumping to the wrong conclusions. And again, with it only being as good as the data that it's fed, Right. You know, I, I think people should be fact checking anything that comes out of uh, out of these generative AIs. There was a there was a legal case. I don't know if you heard about this one. Uh, a lawyer wanted to put a defense together for their case, so they went to GPT. They had it create their entire case defense. They ended up in front of a judge presenting it, and the judge looks at it, and the cases that AI made up were fabricated. They're they were false. <laughs> it made up the cases too. So, and if you if you don't do your homework and check that one, you're going to be in kind of hot water when you go to go use it, right? 
Yeah, well, um, you know, this is silly, but I was watching The Adventures of Superman, 1952, George Reeves' old TV show with my son. And there was an episode about a robot named Mr. Kelso, who basically, they didn't use the phrase AI, but you it, it was helping bank robbers. This robot in this wall of computers in the 1950s was helping these bank robbers rob banks. And it was like, okay, you have to go at 1152. The guard takes a break at this time. He will leave. The money bag will arrive at the teller on the far left. And it was giving all this instruction. So in 1952, they had this version of AI. So, which brings up my question, what is the history of this whole movement? And again, distinguishing it just between general computer uh, technology versus AI. What is the history of AI as it comes to this? Does this go back a century or just a few decades? Where does it begin? You look, even if we go back, uh, you know, 15, 20 years, we've been using a lot of this techniques, at least in the security side on how we detect threats from bad guys. You know, how do we find malicious things? There's been a lot of patterns that have been used over time. Now, the this whole concept of a neural network and how we connect it together, I, I actually have a, I have a book from a long time ago, and I was actually looking at it earlier this weekend. It was dated 1997, and it was about you know understanding neural networks. So if we look at that, that was back in 97, we were talking about neural networks back then. We now have the compute and the ability to deal with these large mathematical models, and that's that's all AI is really a mathematical model. Um, we have the the technology to run it now, if you will, and I think. You know, the, when we when you hear about the memory or the look back, our ability to feed it a lot more data that it can use for lookup, just it gets more powerful these days. Okay, we have to take a break. This is Unleashed with Mark Moreno. We're going to continue our discussion with uh, Denzel Wessels of Dimian on artificial intelligence. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Anticipate potential delays for the morning commute. In other news, a recent government report on prescription drug pricing points to corporate mouth. Freedom of the press is about your right to know. What are you talking about, man? Look at this stats. It's about your right to be informed. Your right to access all types of information keeps us free as a nation. No, 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 Today, there are real threats to press freedom. And your right to know about the world around us. Look. Some threats are obvious, some are easy to miss, but they all put our way of life at risk. We must defend against all of these threats, no matter what kind of news is important to you. Justified putting American troops in harm's way. That's a great question. We must protect our right to know before it's too late. Understand the threats. Protectpressfreedom.org. From weather and traffic reports to news of political developments, we turn to journalists for the information we need to live our daily lives. Journalists around the world provide the news that is essential for democracy, for personal freedom, and for safety and stability. Yet their ability to report freely and safely is under attack like never before. Too many journalists are paying with their lives. They face exponential risks, and they've already paid a heavy toll death threats, online harassment, and physical attacks are becoming a daily experience of journalists in all countries. We just want people to be safe, to be able to get our readers the information that they need to make informed decisions. They checked my phone 
and realized that it was Pegasus. I feel myself like I am naked at the street. These charges were politicized from the start. Facts win. Truth wins. Justice wins. C'est énorme pour moi d'être là, d'être libre. Je ne m'y attendais pas du tout. Stand with the free press. Stand with journalists whose reporting won't be silenced. Press freedom is your freedom. Exposing the motives and agenda of the world's most powerful. Unleashed. This is Unleashed with Mark Morano on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back to Unleashed. I'm Mark Morano. We're, we're continuing with Denzel Wessels of Dimian about artificial intelligence. Okay, I'm looking at a report right now, the World Economic Forum's meeting in Davos, uh, and they have a report out two days ago which says, WEF rank report ranks artificial intelligent risks ahead of armed conflict and disasters. Um, what are they worried about there? I don't know if you've seen that specific report, but why are these major organizations saying AI is going to be the most dangerous thing, more dangerous than war and disasters? Yeah, great question, Mark. You know, if we think about it, going back to the models are as good as the data that it's fed. And one of the things that actually happens is when you ask questions of AI, it can actually even drift the models over time. Um, and so if we think about that, you know, once we start, you know, connecting AI to, you know, to the battlefield, to weapons, to equipment, et cetera, what is the risk of AI making the wrong call? Because it can do it a lot faster than we can. And, right. you know, how do we actually control that? But and if we think about it, it's more than even just, you know, weapon system controls, et cetera. Um, if it if it hallucinates the wrong things and it's giving the wrong answer, it can affect a lot of things all the way down to if people are looking up information about candidates, let's say for the upcoming election that's coming next, you know, is it giving the correct answer? Is it swaying people? Is there a cognitive bias inside the model that is that is sending people the wrong way when they ask questions? I think there's still a lot of risks that we're even learning about. Well, um, uh, on the same token, Klaus Schwab was—I think—was with the co the co-founder of uh, Google, Sergio. What's his last name? Uh, anyway, Sergio, uh, the, the co-founder of Google at a World Economic Forum, talked about within five years, people having a brain implant where we'll know what he says. We'll know what the audience is thinking. We'll be able to tell their thoughts. We'll be able to know, you know, what they're going to like and what their dislikes are. Is that really a possibility, at least on that time scale, or a possibility ever? Are they going to have brain implants that they'll be able to read our thoughts and emotions? Or, or do they have it already, I should ask? Well, I mean, if you look at what Musk is doing with Neuralink, they're they're working on the brain connection to the computer, right? Yeah. So there's obviously work going on in that space. Um, I actually even have a personal relationship to that story. You know, I used to do a lot of deep diving and my, my dive partner was at one of the universities and he was studying uh, brainwave analysis to recognize human speech. So if you think about that, you know, maybe you don't even need a chip. Maybe they're just listening to electro, you know, your brain waves coming out there right. to make determinations. Given enough data, AI can figure out a lot of patterns. And maybe those patterns could even be brainwave too. So I would say I don't even know if it needs an implant. 
Well, here's a question. Is the original lie detector test, is that a version of AI that the, you know, the CIA or Intel, anyone who tries to pass a lie detector, isn't that a form it's trying to read your emotions and using algorithms uh, very similar? I, you know, to a certain degree, I, you know, it's us interpreting, uh, interpreting those, uh, those, um, you know, like galvanic skin response and everything. We know that we get certain responses if there's inaccuracies in data, but going back to even the lie detector, you know, when people are trying to figure out the baseline of someone, they ask a few control questions to establish the data, you know, the baseline with data. So if that data is skewed, if the baseline is skewed, the lie detector you know, results are not going to be as accurate as well. So uh, there is a corollary to AI. I would say it's different to AI, but the same thing of it being based on data and the accuracy being based on data, I think it had some similar problems. Uh, there was a show, uh, again, another TV show reference. Uh, I, I think it was uh, Eureka, it was called, from Eureka, California. But anyway, it was a sort of a sci-fi show, but one of the characters dies, and they live on as an art, AI creature inside of a hard drive of a computer, which they then project, sort of a la you know, Star Wars, a fake person. But I know there was actually a movement of people who believe that we can transfer a human life into sort of the hard drive of a computer, or the cloud, and you can have the essence of that person. It's a very, you know, it's a religious thing. Have you heard of that? Is that actually part of AI or is that a fringe thing or is that a, a mainstream thing? You know, look, think neural networks and, you know, the way our brain works is very similar. At least we believe it is. I think we're still learning about it. There's still a lot we don't understand. But, you know, there there are uh, there are people that are even working on something even similar. You know, let's say the first phase of that is what about if we collect all of your social media you know, interactions or email, et cetera, and we understand the patterns of how you respond to things. In theory, you can create a chatbot, which is a form of AI that says, you know, uh, you can ask a question and it's going to respond how you would typically respond. Now, it hasn't scanned your brain. It's just looked at outputs of your, you know, that you've put all over the place and it's using that as the patterns to follow. So, I mean, it's conceivable that we'll go down that road and the more data that we can collect on someone's mind and their interactions, I think the more accurate those models are going to be. So I think it's a possibility. Okay, now looking at AI, there's always, as a, as a scientist, as researcher, as technology innovators, you can always say, well, can we do something? The next question would be, should we do it? In the area of AI, what, what can we do that we probably shouldn't do, in your view? Like, where does it get too far? Where does it get down a slippery slope, uh, you know, of, you know, invasion of the body snatcher style overtaking of society? Where you have, uh, you know, these they were sort of AI clones. If you go back to that, I don't know why I'm making all the movie and TV references today. But what again? What can we do that we probably shouldn't be doing? Is there limits to where you think research, or not necessarily research, but policy and turning this into action should be, uh, you know, restrictive? Yeah, look, I think we want to continue the research side and, you know, understand and use AI. Definitely the adoption of it. Like I said, 80% acceleration in companies productivity. I think we really want to use it. Now, what things shouldn't we do? I don't think we want to be giving it the ability to make, you know, life or death decisions yet, you know, for individuals and give it, you know, uh, the means to to control that. Um, because 
again, we know there's problems. We know it can hallucinate things. We know there can be problems with the data it's fed. So we have to be very, very cautious. And I would say that, you know, for very, very sensitive in systems as well, maybe we don't want to give AI all of the data. Maybe we want to keep it at arm's length for a certain time. So I think things that we should do is we need to select certain things, you know, certain areas of our data to say, hey, this isn't going to go into a neural network with AI. We're going to keep this kind of isolated. And maybe we give it, you know, a synthetic repository that represents something like the data we want it to learn off of, but we don't want to tell it everything. So I think we're going to want to more safeguard data, if you will. Well, that's a question. Is with all of this data collection, say someone wanted to establish a technocracy or a sort of biosecurity state. Uh, a dystopian future. It seems like AI walks us closer and closer to that possible dystopian future. What reforms, deeper reforms, can we do to prevent this? I know, you know, there's, um, I think it was Naval Yavar Harari, the World Economic Forum advisor, who basically says that artificial intelligence could be taking over for humans, and we're going to have what he called useless eaters. And in order to mollify the public, who are no longer going to be as valuable as sort of a replacement AI, he's recommending sort of psychotropic drugs and computer games to keep everyone docile and uh, and preoccupied. How do you avoid that future? I mean, you know, in a, in a more concrete way, is there anything we can do to try to prevent that? Yeah, look, I think uh, we need to be cautious and, you know, going back even to that student example with, you know, college kids or high school kids yeah. using, you know, generative AI. I think we need to make sure that, you know, people are keeping the ability to think and are using their own minds with, you know, results coming out of AI. Um, you know, I think there, there's no there's no substitute for the human mind yet. You know, maybe it'll come down the road, but it's very easy for us to distinguish what is good and what is bad, what is erroneous, what's, you know, what's correct. And AI is still learning that and we're still understanding how AI will learn that too. So I think we want to, you know, make sure that even though people are using it, it's not just blind usage, like the that law example that I was talking about. We want to make sure that, you know, right. people are intelligently using it. And, and to your point, understanding the risks that are associated with it too, because, you know, it's not just like going to Google and typing a search query and getting a result. There's more that's right. happening behind. Well, in our society today, you know, we have during COVID lockdowns and you had the vaccine mandates, you had, and now there's talk of a central bank digital currency that would sort of be tied to a social credit system. A lot of this is data, 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 which seems to be the basis of AI. As a, you know, someone in the technology sector, does it trouble you just the overwhelming amount of information constantly collected on every individual, every individual purchase, every individual website, every individual um, action. And how can that, does it worry about how that can be misused uh, in that in that setting? That is probably one of my biggest personal fears. And that's actually one of the reasons that uh, DMA company exists. Um, it's, it's about safeguarding data. And, you know, we need to make sure that we're honoring data privacy and data privacy for organizations and for individuals. Um, one thing that's been great seeing happen over the last, you know, two decades is, you know, privacy regulations have, you know, been increasing over the time. And we need to make sure that that continues. And we have to figure out where people can opt out of their data being leveraged inside of AI as well. Because, you know, I may say that, hey, you know, everything about me, I want to keep private. 
There was an example, you know, um, maybe about a decade ago when kind of the Nest thermostats first came out, right? They're they're yeah. kind of cool, smart, connected thermostats. Well, bad guys figured out that they could use the the data that says if people were away or not, they were using that for home robberies. So that again, small piece of data, just are people away or not? And bad guys figured out that they could leverage that. And that's just one piece of data. So think about all the data that you leave behind on, on a daily basis, emails you send, you know, messages you send the outside world, just the fact of, you know, turning on and off your alarm code, all that's data that can be leveraged against you. So I think uh, it should be a fundamental human right to say that I don't want to have my data used. I want to keep it private. Wow. Now, you mentioned Elon Musk earlier. Tell us a little bit about his Neuralink. I think it's meant mostly for severely, like it's for either um, paralyzed people to actually move limbs potentially, or is it for uh, like some people's brains damage to explain what his research is and what he's trying to accomplish? Yeah, obviously, you know, that that's not my field of expertise. But, you know, if you look at what they're trying to do, they're trying to make the ability for, you know, the mind to work with the computer directly to kind of skip the other input devices. So, you know, obviously, right. if it's for disabled people, if it's for just the ability to interact at a different level with a computing device, I think there's a lot of, you know, really cool and interesting possibilities around it. Um, so it's... Uh, you know, I think time will tell where it kind of ends up, um, but I know there's a few different angles that the technology is interesting for, for sure. So, so the, this again gets to the realm of science fiction. It's possible, there at least the people who are researching this and pushing it probably believe that you can transfer a human being into a computer. And there, I know there is a movement like that, but that's where you're getting into the realm where I think that would freak people out. And of course that would, uh, that turns into almost a religious thing where your body could, your soul could live eternally into in a computer, which, uh, you know, no, a lot of people would not accept that, but it's fascinating uh, stuff. So just um, as a summary here, uh, where do you think we're going to be 10, 20, 30 years down the road with AI is, are we going to, you know, it seems like we don't really, let me, let me put it simply. It seems like if government for purposes of power and control can harness any technology. They always use it for more power and control. So when I look at AI, that's my number one issue. I look at it like that. How do you prevent that from, from governments and from big tech corporate collusion? I mean, because remember, uh, there's been many people, especially after COVID, which went on the lockdowns, with, you know, it was an emergency declared, no one could vote for it, where they said, we no longer need barbed wire fences and prisons and watchtowers with guards with machine guns because of our data information, because of our te technology, technology today, you can de-platform, cancer, silence, censor someone, take away access to their own bank account if you don't like their politics. And that's what central bank digital currency is about. And I see that working hand in hand with AI. So I see this as a very dangerous threat as that, but how how do you see it coming? And again, how do you prevent that government? We only have about a minute left or less than a minute. Yeah, that you one make scares your final comment. Yeah. That one really does scare me. And like I said, I think it really comes back to what information is shared, what is government, what's programmatically fed into these models. Again, you know, AI is fast, it can respond very quickly. So I think, you know, guarding the right information so that it doesn't go into the models, I think is probably the one protection that we have today. All right, well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. This has uh, been Denzel Wessels of Dimian uh, talking about AI. Thank you for joining Unleashed today. I appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you very much. All right, and we will see you uh, later this week. We're gonna be back and 
We'll hopefully have some reports on the Michael Mann, Mark Stein trial in Washington, D.C., the climate trial of the century. Unleashed with Mark Morano. Thank you for watching.